Thank you for joining us today for Alma, Am I Racist? My name is Lisa Smith Henderson, and I am the host of the podcast. I am so happy today to introduce to you Rhett Solomon. Now, Rhett is a native of New Jersey. He came down to Atlanta in 1999 to go to Morehouse College, so it was a little bit of a culture shock. Uh, He graduated Morehouse, and then he went on to get his Master's of Divinity at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. He was recently ordained to the Sacred Order of Deacons, and he will become a priest in the Episcopal Church in June of this year. So I am delighted to introduce to you Rhett Solomon. Now, Rhett, that was a big switch to come down here from New Jersey. Tell me, what did you find when you got to Atlanta? Coming down here to Atlanta and seeing that there were still food deserts, seeing that there was still a great disparity in healthcare coverage, still a great disparity in, in wage distribution. Even though the cost of living is far less expensive down here than it is in New Jersey, things are just different. And so my first real introduction to the John Lewis's, you know, coming down here, attending as I did Ebenezer and really getting a, a real intro to things as they are. And what I'll say is this, you know, we always talk about the watershed moment of Obama's election in 2008. And I think that sort of perpetuated the idea that we had come farther than we actually had. And I bought into that. I, I must say, I bought into that. I think that it wasn't but until we most were- Most of my white liberal friends, we all bought into it too. It's like, right. And it wasn't bad. until the mid-year elections in 2010 and the backlash and that it really became apparent, hey, yo, wait a minute, we've still got some very serious issues here. And I think it sobered us, even with Obama's reelection, um, in 2012, it sobered us because of the level of obstruction that he faced on the grounds of his ethnicity. I, I think we all breathed a huge sigh of relief when President Carter came out and said, you know what? The sad reality is that the level of obstruction this president is facing has nothing to, has not so much, it's not so much to do with his policy as it is to do with the undercurrent of racism that still exists in this country. Hearing that from such a trusted national, even global figure as as Jimmy Carter, really did a lot for all of us to take stock of where we are. And then, of course, with Trump's election and all of the madness and immorality, I'm just going to be completely real. Sure. Um, The immorality that I think he fanned the flames of with his rhetoric, his, his conduct, and his priorities really did a lot to, I won't even say set us back in as much as it revealed where we are. And I must say that as painful as that has been, it's also been, I think, a blessing in that the blinders are off. We see what we're up against in a very real way. And and we also see, given the split, how split we really are, that even though Biden got over 5 million more votes than Trump did. Trump still got 72 million votes. Right. And that really should force us to really evaluate where we are and the seriousness and the gravity of the work that we still have to do. So it was a change. I had to grow up 
pretty quickly when I came down here and was challenged by my classmates because I had a, a Pollyanna notion. And it was it was a wake up call, but I'm glad I got it. And I see now why my, my dad, because I really wanted to go to Duke University and I had it got, I was accepted there. I really wanted to go to Duke, but my dad was adamant that I come down to Morehouse, adamant. And I didn't really understand wow. his commitment to Morehouse until I came down mm-hmm. and understood that he really wanted me to have an experience that I had not had up to that point. And the wake up call that I got, and I thanked him for it. I said, now I understand. Now I really understand why you you wanted me to come down here. And I'm grateful. And I, I honestly don't think I'd be where I am. And this is not an, under, uh, an overstatement. I don't think I'd be where I am today if I hadn't attended Morehouse and received that wake up call. Because it... Well, it we're thrown into this history and into this city in a way that at Duke, you would have been a very, very bright black man amongst few. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, living in North Carolina, I do think Atlanta, with all of its shortcomings, it is a better place to see the change mm-hmm. or at least to know what the change the, the vision for it, and then kind of where we are. Mm-hmm. I, I, think I would agree. Special about that. So I would agree. Your dad's intuition was right on. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Did I derail you there on your thought? No, because I, I was thinking about what you were saying and the, the work, the, the decades, decade-long work that's going into turning Georgia blue. And I think you're right. I think that with the events of the summer, George Floyd's murder, the the Breonna Taylor kerfuffle, and just complete fumble, and the level of activism that that started, I think Atlanta is a really good place to see the gravity of the changes. When you are thrown in the mix with folk like Stacey Abrams, and you see the Warnocks and the Ossoffs, who are poised to really make Georgia blue. It was unimaginable earlier this year that a Democrat would have carried Georgia. Um, That all the work that was put in to increase voter registration and voter awareness to, to really get folk out to the polls would be as fruitful as it's been. But I think that We're also seeing, I I must say, what I'm about to say is also tempered by the fact that I think that even though we saw a lot of increase in activism and awareness over the summer, I think that we are on the cusp of the same complacency that overtakes us when we've been shocked out of our comfort, comfortability. I'm mindful that I think we're getting back there again. Um, However, I still have to be joyful about where I believe we're going in that evolution. And I I think that the repudiation of Trump, even though the Republicans made gains in in the elections, the repudiation of Trump, I think, was, and yeah, I have to say it this way, was a victory for righteousness in that there was a conscious decision made by the whole country because 
I'm going to take every opportunity to be as uh, as aware in, in a partisan way that I can before I don the collar. But I think why it was... <laughs> then you've got to go nonpartisan. Well, I, I'm going to be actively nonpartisan after I'm ordained in the Episcopal Church. But I think that the level of delusion in the Trump White House has to do with the fact that, and, and putting ourselves in, in his place for a moment, you see that your party has made all these gains in the country, and yet you don't win. Means that in going to the ballot, most Republicans or enough Republicans went in and in voting for their representatives and their senators and their governors made a conscious decision not to vote for you. That's, that's quite sobering. And that is, that is an ego check to be sure. And I think that, that a lot of what we've seen and by dint of his just surreal and unimaginable response to his defeat has to do with that. It's a tremendous shock for him. I'm glad he got it. But well, in terms of just understanding and trying to understand why he has yet to concede and why he's still uh, lying <laughs> about the results, I think that has to do, that it has a lot to do with it. And I think that in terms of my understanding of the evolution of civil rights and racism, one of the things that I think, and this might engender some anger from, from black clergy and other black folk, but I'll say it anyway, is I cannot lay down my desire to try to understand how folk who disagree, who I, with whom I disagree, think and what might be impelling them to do what they do. Um, well, tell me, have you figured it out yet? Because I've been trying for the last 10 years. <laughs> um, no, I've not figured it out. I, I, I must say that the emotion that continues to pop up is anger. Still, though, I find that I've got to still come to the table because we can't get anywhere unless we're willing to hear each other and see each other. And at least, I won't say hold uh, some of the things with which we disagree and disagree vehemently, not hold them, but at least maintain the tension. Like, I see you, I hear you, I disagree with you. So what are we going to do? How can we try to make this right and better? I don't have the answer. Um, and what has your experience been? Have you been able to make any headway? I will say this, not as much as I think would be helpful. In large part, the liberal wing of the Episcopal Church is already persuaded. But we've still got, even, even in Georgia, we've still got so many in our faith tradition who, for whatever reason, choose to be unenlightened. And I think that's why in my thinking, in my preaching, in my teaching, I, I think I've become aware of the need to continue to agitate. And Let's talk about that. Yeah. Tell me about that. And for me, it, it, it's to tell the truth, to tell it unashamedly, unapologetically, so that we understand that this is all of our work to do. It's not just the work of minorities. It's all of our work to do. And to understand that what hurts this work in so many ways, more than anything, is white silence about it. And 
My commitment to agitators is a commitment that's founded in my belief that I've got to continue to show up, speak out, and stir up. That the church ought to be the place where this stuff happens. And it's not about partisanship as much as it is about doing what's right. Exactly. Um, Realizing that racism, that, that white supremacy, is not just wrong, it's sinful. And that we, we as, as Christians are really empowered to be at the front of this type of advocacy, this type of dialogue, this type of, of real work. And that the commitment to this advocacy, dialogue, and work is salvific. It's that commitment that's going to make us whole in the best way. It's part of why I wanted to do this podcast, Rep, because I've been very blessed to be a member of St. Paul's, which is you know, 99.9% black. I'm just going to say black Mm -hmm. because we have a lot of people from the Caribbean as well. And I live in a black, all black neighborhood. I have been very blessed to have friends and people I can go to, to hear stories. There are a lot of white people. I'm in a book club Mm -hmm. of white people who are studying Ibram Kendi and white fragility and, uh, warmth from another sun. We're really trying to get educated. And a lot of these people have are in the Midwest and in the Pacific Northwest. So they don't have a lot of Black people. They can just pick up the phone and call. So when I tell them stories, sometimes they're like, oh my God, you're kidding me. So what I wanted to do is people that don't have this ability to sit down and talk like you and I are talking to say, this is the truth. These are the stories. This is what is really happening. And it is incumbent upon white people to stand up. We cannot stand by. Forget the Proud Boy reference. (laughs) 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 We're not going to stand down or stand by. We're going to hop in. And that's what, what I think we need to do. What's interesting is my question kind of about your, what you saw that maybe was different. You actually started out with kind of a Pollyanna view, as you said, and now you're more realistic as opposed to being realistic and then saying, oh, okay, things are much better than I thought. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that there is a danger without proximity, trying to understand or study the Black experience in this country redounds to voyeurism. There's a danger that it's only ever voyeurism. And what I hope for is that when the opportunity arises, because that's what is so sad, when you're not put in a place to understand that people are people, that when you can talk to people, when you can laugh with people, when you can share experiences with people to understand that what binds us is our common humanity, that's, I think, what opens the door for the stereotypes and the fears and the prejudgments to really become the controlling narratives. So my hope is that as we encounter each other, we encounter each other with the grace that we should have. That's one of the things I'm grateful for post George Floyd is that it was a wake up call for everybody, that there was no denying 
the eight minutes and 46 seconds where this man is pleading for his life until he stops because he's dead, that it was captured. I think that that's why you saw so many people just take to the streets because it's just like, wow. And then you couple that with the fact that so many people who don't look like me were already feeling the effects of the pandemic because they'd lost their jobs, lost health insurance, weren't able to make ends meet. And you, you see how this situational existential threat sort of corresponded with the structural systemic one that Black folk have been facing. So it really, I think, forced a comedy, not comedy, but comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, that really created a, the force that energized, that I think kicked up new energy in the Black Lives Matter movement. The fact that we were all sitting at home, absorbed with the news, with more free time and more time to be with ourselves yeah. and contemplate. And there was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no workplace to go to to get stuck in workaholism. Thank you, Rhett Solomon, for being with me today. You'll be back again next week, and we're going to talk about being a parent in this time of very obvious white supremacy deep-seated racism that still exists amidst a pandemic, and how you're handling that as a parent. This is Alma, Am I Racist? And if you want to hear more podcasts or learn more about Alma, my inspiration for Alma, Am I Racist? You can go to our website, almaamiracist.com. If you want to send me an email, feel free to do that. You can write to almaamiracist at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me today. Please like us on Facebook and join us again next week for Alma Am I Racist. Thank you.